Hello and Happy New Year and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. This week on the podcast, I'm talking to GP partner, Dr. Tommy Perkins and specialist medical accountant, Andy Powell from Medics Money about the financial year ahead for GP practices and GPs more generally. Coming up, we're talking about the current financial pressure practices are under, how GP partner income has changed and the sort of uplift practices might need from this year's GP contract to help address the shortfalls they've experienced recently as a result of rising inflation. Tommy and Andy also offer some advice on how practices can start the new year on a sound financial footing, explains what upcoming tax changes will mean for GPs more generally, and talk about what the future might hold for primary care networks. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast now by Dr. Tommy Perkins and Andy Powell from Medics Money, who regular listeners may remember from previous episodes. Tommy is a GP partner who set up Medics Money with fellow GP, Dr. Ed Cantello, to help doctors better understand financial issues. And Andy is a specialist medical accountant and has spent many years working with GP practices, supporting them with their accounts and their finances, and now also works with Medics Money. Medics Money has a really successful podcast that provides lots of advice on the many financial issues that affect doctors, including NHS pensions, tax, financial planning, and everything else you might need to know. So do check that out if you're interested. But Tommy and Andy are here today to talk about practice finances and what the year ahead might hold, as well as what recent tax changes mean for all GPs. Thank you both so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks so much for having us, Emma. Hello, everyone. Andy, before we look at finances in the coming year, I was wondering if you could explain the current state of practice finances generally and how rising costs have affected practice finances in the last year or so. Yeah, so the current status really is that income has been pretty static in general practice for the last couple of years. If you look at the 23-24 GMS contract, obviously the global sun has been uplifted and perhaps come on to that in a, in a bit, but um, all the other areas of income have been frozen with 0% uplift. So we're seeing income being pretty static and costs are going up. We're also starting to see the danger of income beginning to fall. We've seen proposals recently from NHS England about vaccinations moving perhaps more into the PCN domain away from practice level, which is a risk. But we're also seeing in some areas, ICSs are struggling to keep financial balance. They're having to do all kinds of things to try and get their budgets back on track. Things like local enhanced services are becoming more of a risk in terms of income either being frozen or going down. It's not a great situation. On the expense side, wages have gone up significantly. The wage bill is by far the biggest expense of any GP practice, and that has gone up significantly for for various reasons. But we've also seen the start of energy costs going up, and that's lagged because a lot of people were on fixed rate deals. But those have come to an end, and energy costs are starting to go up. For, for GPs that own their own premises, then loan interest is an issue. Loan interest, is, as we know at home, has shot up significantly recently. So we're seeing quite a few costs going up. Partly helped in 23-24 in England with the IAF money that's moved into the capacity and access support payment, which is, if that's gone back to practice level, that's helped them a little bit because that's that's a kind of new source of income. The danger with that, though, is it's not recurrent. It's just for 23, 24, so we don't know what's going to happen next year. So you can't rely on that for planning. Overall, static on income, costs going up, and therefore reducing profits. Tommy, as a GP partner, have you found it difficult managing increased costs in your business? How has it affected your practice? The simple answer is yes, because as Andy said, uh, with income static and costs increasing quite markedly, the only way for GP practices to survive is either improve efficiency, i.e. do more with what they've already got, uh, and or cut back services. And 
as GPs, partners, we have no option but to provide the service that we are funded for. And we're getting less funding. So unfortunately, we're having to cut back services, which is really not very nice for us to do because we want to offer our patients the best service, but we can only provide the service that we're funded for. I think most partners have found it really, really difficult, but I'm a bit spoiled because I got no business training at all as a GP registrar, uh, but because I hang out with uh, Medics Money with all the experts like Andy and Ed and all the other amazing experts we work with, I kind of feel really confident in managing my business and working out, right, where can I cut costs? What services are profitable? Like if you're going to offer a locally enhanced service, you need to make sure that you calculate that it's profitable for you because if it's not profitable, you're doing it for free, effectively subsidizing it out of your own pocket. Yeah, I think it is difficult. We've seen a lot of talk in recent months about GP locums and some salaried GPs really struggling to find work, partly because of practices sort of cutting back and trying to save money, and also because of the fact that GPs are not funded under the ARRS, whereas other roles are. Is this something, Andy, that you've seen happening? Is it something that practices, are practices having to make these really difficult choices about whether to fund sessions with GPs or not? We are seeing it. Um, certainly, if you're looking at you know areas that you can control in in terms of costs, locum costs is one of them. I mean, there is a downside as it knocks on in terms of the work level you've got to take on within surgery and and maybe the service you can offer. But actually, it's a it's a fluid cost that you can increase and decrease quite easily. I think we've got to be careful about some of the discussion on on locums and and whether they have gone down. I think it's probably in geographical areas. There are some areas where there is quite a lot of GPs and there's some areas where there aren't a lot of GPs. So you'll find those areas with high GPs, actually probably locum levels have gone down because people can attract salary GPs to fill posts and partners. The ARS thing is an interesting one. I guess it was deliberately doctors were left off that originally because what they didn't want to do is just cause a an internal fight between GPs trying to track GPs off other GPs because the funding was available. There's lots of discussions around, you know, physician associates and, and those types of roles, whether they've impacted. I think probably the jury's out on that, as I think it probably does need a bit more research. Also, just got to bear in mind, time of the year is important. You know, if you look at locums during the summer holidays, are in demand because they're replacing staff that are going off on, on leave. Um, so I think there's, there's just various factors at play here. We've talked a little bit about the pressures practices are facing and the fact that profits are going down. But obviously last year, the media had a bit of a field day with headlines about GP partner pay increasing. I mean, that was to do with money that practices were paid for delivering COVID jobs. We were talking about GP partner income in 2021-22. What's the state of GP partner income now, do you think, based on the practices that you work with? So 21-22 is very much a peak for the reasons you said. I mean, the COVID vaccine campaign, you have to remember in that sort of 12-month period, you didn't have to have one jab you had multiple jabs and practices that were involved in the, the the vaccine campaign would have seen therefore their vaccine income go up to reflect that what we've got to be careful about is just looking at total pay here because that's a misleading factor you know if you look at in say you know a hospital post we always talk about hourly rates of pay uh, you know that's what the junior doctors issues about hourly rates of pay um, but we never talk about that in gp terms we talk about total profits but in 21-22, yes, the income went up, but so did the workload. I, I know quite a few, particularly some of the, the clinical directors at PCN level who led the vaccine campaign, they were working seven days a week constantly at that point in time. Yes, you would expect your pay to go up if you're doing that kind of work. Since then, 
it's dropped. You know, so the COVID vaccination income has dropped down. There is still COVID vaccination income out there, but it's it's more similar to the, the flu level of income now. So it's dropped back out. We expected that to happen. But also what we've seen then is all the, the, the wage costs and the other factors come into play as well. So if you look into 22-23, the trends there are that profits have gone down for practices, um, not just because of COVID, but gone down because of other factors as well. And they're really now at pre-pandemic levels. What you have to then bear in mind is actually inflation has gone up, I don't know, since 1920, it's gone up probably 20, 25%. Whereas GP pay has effectively gone back to where it was at 1920. In real terms, it's gone down substantially. I just wanted to loop in on what Andy just said there about the COVID income, because yeah, the income went up as as Andy said, because as as GP partners, we were working twenty four seven to deliver the largest mass vaccination program ever. And I actually read a study on, on GP online, actually not sponsored, which showed that that the NHS constantly underestimates GPs. So the NHS England thought that GPs would deliver fifty six percent of the COVID vaccinations, and there was all this hype about these mass vaccination centres. Oh, aren't they so amazing? Well, actually, what happened was GPs didn't deliver 56% of COVID jabs. They delivered 71% of COVID jabs because we worked incredibly hard. And it shows the strength of a partner-led GP practice, incredibly agile. We can spin up a mass vaccination program in a matter of weeks, no problem. So we did 71% of the jabs. But even more, if you went to a mass vaccination center, which were all over the news as the, the next best thing, that cost the NHS £34. If you came to my GP practice and had your COVID vaccine, it cost the NHS £24. So yet again, GP partners did more work for less money than any comparable service, £24 at GP versus £34 at the mass vaccination centre. And what do GP partners get? They get hung out to dry by the right-wing media. So that's slightly, not many things annoy me in the press because I try not to read it, but that did slightly annoy me because yes, my income did go up because I was working 24-7 delivering a mass vaccination centre, doing more vaccines than the NHS expected me to do for lower cost than anyone else could deliver it. That's my rant. But I think it's really important to to explain that. It's so easy for people to just read those headlines and see it as, oh, I've had another pay rise. But it is it, obviously, as you both very well explained, it's not the case at all. Anyway, looking ahead to 2024, you know, start of a new year and everything, one of the things we know that's going to happen this year is that the minimum wage is set to rise this year. What sort of impact is that likely to have on practices if they don't get an equivalent rise to their funding? So the, the announcement was that the minimum wage is going up from £10.42 an hour to £11.44, which is almost a 10% rise, which is going to kick in from April uh, 2024. What you've got to also factor in it, that's not just the overall, that's just the only cost that practices have. On top of that, you have pension costs, you have national insurance costs, uh, which are, are paid for by practices on behalf of their staff. So actually, the overall cost per hour is, is substantially more, roughly around 25, 26% more. So it's going to be a substantial rise. And it's not just about people at minimum wage. And this is the problem we're beginning to see as, as minimum wage has gone up. It's starting to eat into those lower bands of, um, you know, things like reception staff, junior admin staff, healthcare assistant staff. They are all very close to the minimum wage level. And everyone's trying to keep a differential up. So, you know, if you are currently at, um, you know, say £11 an hour, you're going to have to at minimum go up to £11.44 because that's the law. But you'd probably want to be going up to at least £12 to keep that differential with the minimum wage. So you're going to see a knock-on effect through quite a lot of the the wage levels that that GP practices have. So if that goes up and the funding doesn't, we then have probably three years in a row now 
where um, costs have outstripped funding. Year one was twenty one twenty two was which was masked a bit by the COVID income, which helped help deal with that. Twenty two twenty three, as I said, we've seen a drop. Twenty three twenty four, going to see another drop. Twenty four twenty five, um, likely to see a further drop unless funding goes up significantly more. And it's not just you know what are we careful here? It's not just funding at the global sum. You know all the focus tends to be on global sum funding, but you know COF is a big part of income, and that's not risen. Local enhanced services, on average deliver more funding than COF to a practice across the country. Big regional variations, but on average, it's, it's higher funding than COF is. No one makes a big issue of that. And if we start seeing ICS is reducing local enhanced services to, because they have to, to keep in budget, then it's going to be problematic with all these things coming together. So I think it's a quite a worrying issue that NHS England and those in the regional devolved NHS services need to start to address. Tell me, is this something that you sort of worry about day to day in your practice? Because I know that staff salaries and wages have been a real concern for many GP partners that I've spoken to over the past year or so, particularly, you know, when you're trying to compete with other local employers who are potentially able to offer bigger pay rises and things like that. Is it something that you worry about in your business? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm in the fortunate position that we already pay all of our staff above the minimum wage already. And I'm aware that not everyone can do that so you know but i think as a as an employer that's just something that we decided to do and and as you say partly that was guided by the fact that local other employers locally you know paying much more anyway so we need to be competitive but i think andy's just touched on a really really important point that really does worry me and if you are a partner this should also worry you as andy said the global sum is a, is effectively having a below inflation increase. So that's a, that's a cut, right? So the global sums cut. Quaff is frozen, okay? But more concerning for me is what the ICBs are doing about capping the locally enhanced service income because, as Andy said, I think like, like people are sleepwalking into this. Locally enhanced service income for my practice is is a large part of our income. And recently, our ICB, so three quarters of the way through the financial year, My ICB emailed me to say, I know we're three quarters of the way through the financial year, but we're capping your locally enhanced service income for this current year. Okay, no advance warning of that whatsoever. And I'm not blaming the ICB for this, by the way. They've got a budget to stick to. Okay, so that means that I'm going to have to start reducing the locally enhanced services that I provide. And so one service that we do provide is for monitoring people with something called MGUS. It basically detects if people have blood cancer or not. So it's a really important service for my patients. It means that my elderly, frail patients, instead of having to go to the hospital, which is about 10 miles away, they can come to my practice. We can do everything in-house and we monitor them in-house. Okay. If the ICB starts cutting back my locally enhanced service, I'm going to have to hand that locally enhanced service for MGUS back to the ICB and then they're going to have to pay a hospital to do it which will end up costing them more it'll mean my patients have to travel to and from the hospital so if we start capping this LES locally enhanced service income this concerns me greatly because we've got you know croft frozen GMS going down now we're capping this locally enhanced service like I am actually having to cut back services that I offer to my patients and for example the ICB just emailed me recently again to say, look, I know that you do 40, 40 minor operations a, a quarter, valuable work, which our patients value and means that they don't have to wait a really long time to see dermatology. They can come into the practice and have it done in the practice. You did do 40 a quarter. We've restricted you now down to five a quarter. At five a quarter, it's not a valuable service. So most likely we'll hand back that service and then the patients will either wait long, long waits for dermatology 
or they just won't get the work done. And ultimately, it's going to cost the ICB more. It's very short-sighted, but if we start losing this this LES income as well as all the other cuts that Andy has mentioned, that really does concern me. Yeah, that's a good point. But talking about the national contract, what sort of level of funding increase do you think GP practices will need to see in the contract this year to address some of the shortfall they've dealt with in recent years? What would be a good result, do you think? Is there such a thing as a good result? Going into this sort of next year, I think um, everyone needs to be realistic about where we are politically here. Um, we are probably, he says, in 2024 will be the final year of this current government. We should see an election this year. So what you're going to see is in politically a bit of process of not very much happening. I don't think there's going to be a fundamental shift from government saying we want to change an awful lot in terms of the NHS. Certainly there was no new funding announced in the budget just before Christmas going into the NHS. So if funding's at national level globally is fixed, you know, the difficulty is how you get that down to general practice. General practice, core general practice, and I distinguish that from PCN general practice, um, core general practice has not gone up. It needs the money desperately now to go up. Probably 8 to 10% for just to, to cover 2022-23's losses, excluding covid uh, probably could well be looking again similar for 23, 24, maybe slightly less. Uh, and in 24, 25, we've got these wage cost rises coming through, then again, we'll need something substantial. So just to get back to where you were in 1920, you're probably looking 20% plus, but that's going to be uh, unfortunately unrealistic in terms of an ask. Just being a bit controversial here, um, I think some of the issue around GP funding has been the blurring of lines between practice level funding and PCN funding. Um, an awful lot of investment has gone into PCN side over the last five years. There are things that could be done there to shift some of the funding. So, you know, if we look at things like the IIF funding, which is a bit like QOF within PCNs, actually, had does that really deliver value for money? Would that be better place just in core GP funding? Can we shift some of that money back? You know, we talked about the ARS money, how how it could be used more flexibly, how that could help practices. There are things like that that will have to be done and have to be addressed because I don't think there's going to be a lot of top level money coming in. Pound for pound, have PCNs deliver the same value as core general practice does pound for pound? My gut feeling is probably they haven't. We've seen umpteen reports and umpteen this, that, and the others coming out about you know, the future general practice, but nowhere I've seen anyone actually appraise, actually have PCNs been effective compared with core practice. No, I think there's a lot of GPs who totally back up what you say there, Andy. Tommy, from your experience, do you think PCNs deliver value for money? Would you like to see more of that money moved into core funding? I think I would always like to see more money move to core funding. And we are reaching a point now where, you know, as we've outlined, the core funding is not enough to keep the lights on. Um, but I think there's a kind of ideological opposition to that. I think the powers that be think if they give GP partners extra funding, we'll just go out and buy a Ferrari each and not spend it on patient care. Actually, the evidence is that what we actually do is we provide extremely good value care for our patients and we don't squander it on Ferraris. I think there's an ideological opposition to it. And then has PCNs been a success or failure? That's like a massive question. From my personal opinion and, and experience, our PCN has been a really positive experience. It's working really, really well together and it's been very, very positive. And if anything, it just shows once again the flexibility of the partnership model because PCNs were effectively imposed on GP partners, but we've just got on with it and we've made it work. And it feels like we've made it work 
despite the system, not because of the system. But if your PCN is not functioning on all cylinders and you're not able to utilize all that funding, you have got a big problem. So that's been a big area of focus for us to make the PCN work. But probably if I could choose, I would not have chosen to go by the PCN route. Do you think there is a future for PCNs? Are practices so tied into PCNs and the money now that it would almost be really difficult to scrap them? Or do you do you think they are here to stay? I mean, I think they're here to stay because that's the way commissioning is heading. Using that example of the announcement on vaccination services before Christmas, you know, that was talking about actually doing it on a PCN footprint rather than a practice footprint. And to my view, you know, they've decided PCNs are the way forward, not practices. I mean, all the ICS stuff is at PCN level. It's not a practice level. So untangling that's going to be quite difficult. So I think they're here to stay in their current form. Is the funding important? Yes, the funding is important. Probably the staff funding, the ARS funding more than anything is important. Has it been used effectively? I think in some PCNs, as Tommy talked talked about, you know, where they're working well, absolutely yes. In other areas, though, maybe not so. You know, partly that's a recruitment issue. You may be able to recruit pharmacists, but then they disappear and go and take other jobs, and and people chop and change jobs all the time. So, it's a variable feast. I think those you know that function very well will not want to see PCNs be dismantled because they've made a lot of headway in terms of how they work. But where it's not functioning well, I'm sure they'd like an, an alternative approach. But I think bottom line here is stuck with them for the time being. Moving on to, to tax. There was some tax changes that were announced by the Chancellor. These are in England um, as part of the autumn statement. What do they mean for individual GPs and their finances? Some of those come into effect this month, don't they? The big announcement was around national insurance um, and national insurance reducing. And that does should start to be seen by employed staff from January. Um, so um, from an employee staff route, the, the payroll gets changed in January. And we have new national insurance rates, so people to see, should start to see a national insurance cut. Unfortunately, for self-employed people, uh, which is GP partners in the main, um, that effect doesn't happen until April, um, April 24. And realistically, the way the self-assessment tax system works is actually you don't feel it in your actual tax payment you make to the HMRC until probably January 2026, um, because of that, so it's going to be a bit of a time lag for for self employed. Um, the other big announcement was the minimum wage we talked about, but the, probably the biggest issue with the, the the English budget was the thing they didn't announce, um, and that was the fact that um, they've frozen all the tax bans. And this was an announcement a couple of years ago that they were going to freeze the tax bans until twenty twenty seven twenty eight. Um, so quite still a long way to go, which means that the personal allowance stays the same. The 40% tax bans remains the same. Um, the effective rate, 60%, still applies from income from 100000 to just over 125000 And all those bans staying the same means that actually if your pay goes up, Bear in mind, we've just talked about GP profits going down, so it's you know may not be so relevant to them. I've seen that argument before, but you know hopefully they'll reverse. But if your pay goes up, actually you'll end up paying a lot more tax just because of what what's called fiscal drag because of these allowances being made the same. So that's a problem. On the plus side, in England, we should see the pension rates drop in April. So the highest rate of pension is currently 13.5% for a GP partner. That should drop to 12.5%. So we should see some benefit there. So that's on the plus side. Also worth just talking about 
Scotland here because Scotland is a devolved nation for for tax purposes, and we had a Scottish budget just before Christmas in in true festive style, and that was quite significant in increasing tax rates. So they've got a new rate of tax of forty five percent now for anyone over seventy five thousand in England. That's forty percent in Wales. That's forty percent. And the highest rate of tax is going to be 48% in Scotland. In England, that's 45%. In Scotland particularly, the tax rises there are going to substantially impact doctors and GPs. Tom, you were saying that Medics Money has done a podcast about that. Yeah, we released it on Boxing Day because tax never sleeps uh, and tax (laughs) never rests. So yeah, it's out there on our podcast feed. I think it's called uh, Six Turtle Doves and Five Rates of Income Tax or something uh, quite witty. Uh, But yeah, check that out. If you are from Scotland, it's a great point to point out that differential tax rates apply. As Medics Money, you you set that up to help doctors better understand money issues. Is tax something that you get a lot of doctors coming to you for help with? Of course, uh, the tax is important, but there is more to good financial health than just tax. And I think this outlines a wider point, which is that as GPs, we get plenty of clinical training, which is as you would expect, but we get absolutely no financial training at all. And then as if you're a partner, you're just given the keys to a small or medium-sized business and left to learn on the job without receiving any formal financial training. And that just ends in expensive mistakes. And it ends with practices struggling, simply because no one's ever taught them how to run a business. And they're amazing doctors, but because no one's ever taught them about how to run a business, they don't know what to do. And similarly, like self-employed locums, you're running your own small business, but no one's ever sat you down and given you the business training that you need. So that's why we started Medics Money to provide holistic training. But I think until we acknowledge that, you know, GPs get tons of clinical training, but no business training, GP practices and GPs in general will continue to struggle with finances. And of course, we've made big strides into doing this. Our podcast now has just passed 1 million downloads. We've got over 50,000 people on our email list, you know, learning what they need to learn. But we just need more support from the profession to offer this financial education to GPs. So we've got a few things that we do there. Obviously, our free offerings, the podcast and the emails. But we also have our GP partner course, which is in its seventh cohort now. The seventh cohort starts on the 21st of February, and over 600 partners have received the financial training that they need in order to run a better GP practice. And that has been for me, and I know Andy as well, professionally, one of the most rewarding things I've ever done, because we've literally had cases where someone came to one of our teaching sessions on the course, and they sent us an email a few weeks later saying, you just saved me £55,000, because no one had ever taught them what they needed to do. So if we don't teach GPs how to manage business, guess what? They're going to struggle. And also just, it's not just all about partners. We also have a course for registrars now, which is available as well, which helps to give them the financial education that they need, but we need more support. With all of that in mind, is there anything practices can do sort of at this point of the year, the start of the year to put themselves on a good financial footing? I mean, is there anything they can do to grow their income? We've talked about things going down. Is there anything to grow their income or any areas they should be looking at to make sure that they're in good financial health this year? Actually, general practice is a business and you've got to get your financial management correct, as you would at home, making sure you're not spending money where you don't need to spend money, making sure you're trying to maximise the income. It sounds basic, but the example Tommy gave about the practice that 
had saved 50,000. That came from actually, um, we, we run a sort of a, a clinic where we review some accounts anonymously. And we talked about that. And I think they were one of the practices. It really highlighted when compared with other practices, they were underperforming. They went away and investigated it and found out actually, it was just them missing claims. And they were a practice based on their accounts that were unsustainable. And hopefully it shift them back to being sustainable. So getting some good financial systems in place and they're not complicated you know there's some really good software out there like zero or quickbooks you can use just to get that information i think the other thing that practices need to consider more strongly is not doing unprofitable work and starting to be more militant in turning stuff down one of the practices i used to act for my other role came to me and said, look, we're just looking at um, coil fitting as to whether it was profitable. And we just did a little model and created a modeler for our, our community to use. Um, and that just proved that actually some of these things have just been stuck at historic rates of pay and no one's ever addressed them. Um, and they're actually unprofitable. And if you don't push back, you're just going to take that unprofitable work on yourself. You're effectively funding the NHS. So you've got to start understanding your income streams. And the other thing probably they need to be doing is on staffing, working closely with the PCN again, looking about how to maximize using using that PCN staff. That's not replacing your own staff necessarily, but actually just making sure it's working as effectively as possible to deal with the workload. And final thing I'll just talk about is premises. Certainly if you own your own premises, maximizing the rental income is important. Everyone should get a triannual review of their, their rental income. Everyone should be claiming about business rates and water rates. They're 100% reimbursable. Too many, too many practices forget about that. You know, doing some of the basics like making sure you get your rent review assessed, use the services of a specialist uh, surveyor to help there. Um, that helps improve your income. Making sure you get the reimbursements done is, you know, sounds basic, but again, you know, it, it just everything helps really. Uh, and then with premises as well, I think space usage comes into play. Um, Something like, you know, the government say 26,000 more staff have now been employed in in primary care through the ARS roles. Zero percent investments got into premises. So these people have to sit somewhere. Yeah, there's some absolute golden nuggets there. Um, It's tough to follow that, but I reckon I'm going to be okay. So I just think about this really simply, okay, which is that profit, i.e. the viability of your business, is equal to the income that you receive uh, minus the expenditure that you spend. So we've talked about reducing expenditure already, so I'm not going to go there. In terms of increasing income, Andy's kind of alluded to this, but I would start by making sure that you are getting paid for work you've already done. Uh, and that sounds kind of simple, but unfortunately, it's not because you need to get your claims process tight. Everyone always focuses in on quaff here. That's fine. It's a good place to start. But let's tighten up your locally enhanced services claims as well. Make sure you're getting paid there. You know, make sure that you're claiming all your drugs reimbursements that you could do. It's so complex. So if you just start not by doing more work, but by just getting paid for the work you've done, I think that would help a lot of practices. But, you know, it's very challenging to do. And that's something that we support people on our course to do. And we've had some incredible results there, of course. And then to Andy's point, I think don't do work that doesn't make sense. So if someone releases a new locally enhanced service, instantly what I do is I use Andy's spreadsheet and I cost up how much I'm going to get paid, how much is it going to cost me to provide the service to make sure that I'm not making a loss on that service. And if you do that for a lot of things, and Andy mentioned coils, and some people are always surprised when we say coils might not be that profitable. It depends on your locally enhanced service, but that is something where it's a very valuable service to the patient, but it's not very profitable uh, for us. 
And this is like the fascinating bit for me as a partner, because I can go to my other partners and say, look, here's a list of locally enhanced services that make no financial sense. But because we've got a holistic overview, we can actually say, well, coils are very important to our community. So even though they make us almost no money whatsoever, we're going to continue to offer that service. And some of the more profitable locally enhanced services will subsidize it. And that's why I love being a partner, because it's not just about the money. It's about providing a service that you are happy with and that patient's value. You've done that. You've made sure you're getting paid for what you've done. Uh, You've tightened up on your claims process. You are going to have to think a bit outside the box, okay? So one thing that we started doing, which is great for patients and good for us as a business, is research, okay? You can start doing research, and it's it's reasonably well remunerated, and it's not difficult to start. So that's something that we go through on the course. Um, Value yourself, so review your private fees. If I go to my solicitor and ask them to spend an hour writing a complex legal document for me, they're going to charge me north of £300. It's still possible to go to some GPs, ask them to write a complex medical document for me, and they charge me £75 an hour. That doesn't sit right with me. So make sure you're getting paid what you do. Max out any income sources that you can. So flu jabs this year, I know that a lot of practices really struggled with flu jabs. At my practice, we went really hard on flu jabs because giving flu jabs helps my patients to not get ill. And if you do it right, it makes a profitable income stream for you. So we went pretty big and we've actually managed to increase our flu jabs by 10% this year. And we did that. It it was quite complicated, but anyone could replicate it. Essentially, it just involves harnessing the power of automation. Okay, so letting the patients book the flu jab themselves by texting them a link. Don't get your receptionist to phone them up and spend 15 minutes on the phone. Just send them the link. And I think that links into my final point. Utilize automations. You know, there are some amazing software products now, and there's new ones coming out all the time for automating you know, repetitive processes inside your practice. So one thing that we've done is we now have automatic registrations. So when a patient joins my practice, I want people to join my practice because I want to look after them. We make it as easy as possible for them to register online. And then off the back end, my staff used to spend 20 minutes processing each registration, okay, which is, you know, just takes time. We've got a process which completely automates that process now. And last month we had 69 new patients register. 65 of them went through that automation completely autonomously and accurately, and it's safe. So there are ways that you can automate processes which will save you time and money and give a better patient experience. That's really good advice. You know, there are things that you can do as a partner, uh, but you've got to be proactive about it. And that goes back to you need to get the right training. And if you want to come and hang out with us, come on our course. It's great. Uh, We have over 600 people on it now. And it's been one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done. And you can find out about it and join the next cohort at medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash GP course. Initially, it started because as you were aware, there was the new partnership funding. But what we found out uh, was that lots of experienced partners were wanting to come on the course as well. And so It is for all partners, and it's not just for GP partners. And they all interact in our online private community. And this is just a a melting pot of people, partners, all pulling in the same direction. And it's, it's so great to see it. But we need more of that. We need more partners working together with experts to improve their business. And in terms of funding, there are funding options. So you can get it via your PCN. You could just pay for it via your practice. And Andy's done a nice slide which explains that. 
how the costs shake out. Tommy's done the sales pitch, but I think generally, I think from, from my perspective, what we've seen is general practice has become more and more complex. Certainly with interaction with PCNs now, it's really, really complex in terms of running a GP practice. You know, you can't be running businesses these sizes now without some support. And I think certainly the interactions we see in our community, which I think to me is the real positive side of it, is, 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 is really positive. People that have been partners five, 10 years are now stepping into new roles in their practice. Maybe the, the senior partner's leaving and they're st- stepping up into a, a more senior role and they need help. And the NHS isn't providing that help at the moment. And it really is something the NHS needs to consider because if we're going to have a strong, viable NHS, we need people making the right decisions. And they're not going to make the right decisions unless they're trained how to do it. Well, thank you both so much for your time today. Thank you. Yep, thank you. Thanks so much for having us, Emma. Let's do it again soon. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And thanks so much to Tommy and Andy for taking the time to talk with me. If you're interested in any of the things we've talked about today, don't forget GP Online's sister website, GP Business, provides lots of practical advice and information to help support GP partners and practice managers running their business covering financial, management and leadership issues, as well as providing updates on the GP contract and other changes in primary care that will affect your business. You can find more information and details on how to subscribe at gpbusiness.co.uk. I'll be back with another episode of Talking General Practice next week, so please do join me then. 